I moved to St. Louis Park 11 years ago, my wife and I did, and we, we were planning to start a new church somewhere in the Twin Cities metro. We didn't really know if that would be St. Louis Park or not, uh, but pretty quickly we realized that, that there was an opportunity in St. Louis Park for a new church reaching the next generations, and so we began building friendships, kind of seeing what God would do, and uh, I built a friendship with a guy, I'm going to call him Jack, because uh, I, don't, I don't know anybody in our church named Jack. Um, this guy's name is not Jack, but to protect the innocent or the guilty, however you look at this, I'll, I'll protect his name. Uh, Jack and I began building this friendship for two years. Jack grew up in kind of a mainline church, kind of going to church. As Danielle mentioned, a lot of people are checking out church on Easter. You maybe heard, heard the term Creaster, Christmas and Easter, or CEO only, Christmas e- CEO, Christmas Easter only. Uh, Jack grew up in that kind of family, going to church periodically. He would claim to be a Christian because, well, He's an American, which sounds terrible, right? Listen to it. It sounds terrible. But it's true. That's what some people think. Well, it's a Christian nation, and God we trust is on our money. And so Jack, I almost went by his real name, uh, claimed to be a Christian. And and we talked about things of faith, and he knew that I was a pastor starting a new church. and, And he was a part of our church for a while, and we just built this really good friendship. We had a ton of fun together, um, really, really liked Jack. And as we got to know each other, it seemed like our our relationship needed to get a little bit deeper as far as like, okay, the things that he's saying that he believes don't quite match with the things that Jesus is teaching. And and, and I want us to grow as brothers in Christ. And so we started a Bible study together. We opened up the Bible, had been building this friendship for two years. And then within two Bible studies— Actually opening up this book and looking at what Jesus had to say, he decided, I don't like what Jesus has to say. I'm out. Stop coming to the church. Stop doing Bible study. And no longer did we hang out. He he had this kind of idea of who Jesus was, and he had these woundings from his church upbringing, but then also, you know, kind of pushing back against his woundings. He had these other concocted ideas of his own about who Jesus would be and what Jesus would give him freedom to do, and he just decided, I don't want to surrender to what Jesus is telling me. And it was clear, like, sometimes it's us, right? We're the problem. We tell people things that Jesus wants from them that isn't actually in the book, And I've done that many, many, many times. God forgive us for our hypocrisy. But in this instance, we were opening up the word, and he was like, I don't like what Jesus says, and I'm out. My guess is you know somebody like that, somebody who's deconstructed the faith. Maybe they've left the church. Maybe they've left you. The friendship, the relationship is over because they want nothing to do with it. Or, Or... Back in the day, this was called committing the sin of apostasy. Now we call it deconstruction, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Millennials and Gen Zers didn't invent deconstruction. Some of you think that it, like, it's on the rise. There's books about it. There's songs about it, about, like, tearing apart the faith and walking away because of, and we're going to talk about this as we go. There's many different reasons for this, and we're going to discover that in our text today. But I would guess that all of us know somebody who has deconstructed. They've walked away from the faith. They've walked away from the church. Maybe they've even walked away from you. Maybe you are that person. Maybe you're here this morning because somebody dragged you here. They guilted you here. And you're like, I'm here because of you. And you get it. 
I've been in that place where I've been dragged into different religious environments and I didn't want to be there. And so regardless of your journey, much can be said about this idea of deconstruction or, or, or the sin of apostasy or walking away from Jesus. And we're going to look at that this morning. But before we get into our text, I want to say this very clearly to everybody who is here this morning, regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here at Park Community Church. We want to journey with you. Now, I do want you to know that this church community is unashamedly striving to walk with Jesus day in and day out together. That's our goal. If you're not there, you're welcome. You got to know we're going to try to point you towards Jesus as we stumble along with him together. But you're welcome here, regardless of where you are on that journey. We're simply a messy group of people who are stumbling forward together. And you're welcome to stumble along with us if you so choose. We're going to see this morning in our text people struggling with Jesus. Some walking away, some deconstructing, and some staying, and some remaining. We're going to engage that tension as we go this morning. Let's start by looking at Jesus' words. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our text for today. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, that's confusing if you're just picking it up today and you weren't here last week. I'll, I'll give you a little rundown later about what it is that they had heard. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there, were, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open up this text to us this morning and help us to hear your voice in this, your invitation to receiving eternal life with you. Jesus, would you speak? We're desperate to hear your voice. We pray in your name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, in order to get the full effect of this text that we're looking at today, verses 60 through 71, we need to do a quick review of the first 59 verses. Uh, those of you who are here last week, we did verses all, all the way 1 through 59, and so I'm going to do just a quick review. If you look back, John chapter 6, verse 2 says, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This is still pretty early in Jesus' ministry. There's a growing movement behind Jesus. There's growing curiosity about Jesus. He's healing people. He's meeting their physical needs, their earthly desires. And, and, and don't we want our physical needs met and our earthly desires met? 
And so people are flocking after Jesus. He's this new miracle worker. He's this leader. He's like the new podcaster that everybody is listening to, the new author that everybody is reading and, and, and curious about. And, and they think not only is he new the, the new podcaster, the new author, but he actually might be the one with the answers. He might become the political leader. He might be the one who's going to relieve us from Roman oppression. And so there's this crowd following Jesus because of the signs that he's doing. And then verses 1 through 13, he multiplies fish and loaves. He, he feeds their bellies. He meets their earthly desire, their physical hunger. But then he uses that, and all of what chapter 6 now is about is him using that act of, of fulfilling their earthly desires. And this was the whole sermon last week that he fulfills their earthly desires by multiplying fish and loaves, but he uses that to point them to something eternal. To say, your physical hunger points you to a spiritual, eternal hunger that all human beings have. You will never be satisfied with the things of earth. Now, the things of earth are good gifts of God, and, and they're necessary, and Jesus cares enough about us to meet those needs, but he points us to something deeper, something eternal. And so that's what the rest of this text is about. And he gives them some hard and confusing teachings. And so that's where we pick it up in verse 60. When the disciples heard it, heard it, that's the teaching that he had been given. If you remember, he says, I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will never be hungry or thirsty again. And so it's, it's believed that there's a couple different ways that people are confused when they say that, that when the disciples heard this teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Some people believe that it's a hard saying because it's confusing, right? What does he mean by eat my flesh and drink my blood? Is Jesus, is Jesus recommending cannibalism here? Now, some people take it that way. I don't think so. Like Jesus often spoke in metaphors and people sometimes got it, especially his followers. They knew that he was using like earthly symbols and physical realities to kind of push them to something deeper. And that's what he's doing throughout this entire talk. You know, some people think that that's just the hard saying that like, this is hard to understand. It's confusing. What does Jesus mean? There may be elements of that with some of the crowd, some of the people following him, but ultimately think their response here, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? They have a hard time accepting Jesus's truth. They're not just confused about what Jesus is teaching them, although there is some confusion mixed into this response. This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? There's some confusion there, but ultimately, you know, they don't say this is a confusing saying, who can understand it, right? It's this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And sometimes Jesus' teaching confronts us in that place. Jesus, what you are asking of me, what you are requiring of me, or what you are offering me, it goes against my natural inclinations. This is a hard teaching. Like my buddy Jack, I don't like what Jesus is saying. I don't know if I'm willing to go there. This is a hard teaching of Jesus. I don't know that I want to listen to it. I don't know that I'm willing to give up and to, 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 to trust Jesus' way over my way. So that's at play here. The question is, what is so hard about this teaching? And there's many different layers to this. There's four things that I think are going on here in this passage that they're really wrestling with as far as 
Jesus is teaching? What is the hard part of Jesus' teaching here in John 6? Four different things. The first one is uh, that, whoops, oh man, I totally screwed this up. Sarah, could you go back two slides? Jesus is, there's the first one, okay. This is what Jesus is doing in John 6. He begins to claim to be God. And for the most of these people who are following him are religious Jews. They're steeped in the Old Testament. And to claim to be God is an offensive claim. It still is today, right? If somebody starts claiming to be God, they're a cult leader. Watch out. Jesus is claiming to be God. And he's doing signs and miracles that are piquing people's interest. But in John 6, specifically, as he begins to teach that he is the bread of life, look at, look at verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father. And so if you remember, they're, they're remembering the Passover when God led them out of Egypt, and then they celebrated the Passover as they wandered through the wilderness, and God had given them bread from heaven, manna, through Moses. And now Jesus is saying, like, Moses wasn't that great. He was a pointer. And Moses didn't give you bread. Notice, also, he says, my father. Often, in the Old Testament context, God, Yahweh, would be referred to as our father. Jesus says, my father. He's claiming something unique, some kind of intimate connection to God. He says, but my father gives you the bread from heaven. Verse 33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And and remember, he's saying, I am the bread of life. I am God. I am the one from heaven. I am heaven on earth. They say to him, sir, give us the bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's claiming to be God. This is a big claim. It's a, it's a hard saying that they had to wrestle with. He's also claiming to be the exclusive way to eternal life. That's a hard saying. It's something that has to be wrestled with. It was hard for them 2,000 years ago. Like, there, is there really one way? Now, a lot of these Jewish followers of Jesus... And, and these religious leaders, they, they believed that in the exclusivity of Yahweh. He is the one true God. That's part of their statement, right? It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of the Shema, what they would recite. But Jesus now is, is pushing them and he's making it clear that there is an exclusive way to eternal life. And it's not quite what they had thought and it's not quite what they were expecting it to be. And and it's a hard saying that they have to wrestle with. And for you and I, it's a hard saying today that we have to wrestle with. Why are there all these religions? Are they really all wrong? Why are there these good people, Grandma Mabel, who doesn't believe in Jesus, but she's so nice and kind and loving? Can't she just go to heaven by her good works? Like, she's a nicer person than my pastor. Is Jesus really the only way to heaven? It's a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? And and Jesus is pushing this way. That's what he's saying. He's going to say that exclusively throughout the book of John. 
John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's already said in John chapter 3, verse 16, that, that for God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's, it's through Jesus. He's claiming ex- exclusivity. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus is, is starting to give teaching that's going to separate true followers from fans. Like there's this big crowd, right? Thousands of people, but it's going to whittle down to 12. And this is the first hard saying that we see here in this text. The next, and that's all through John chapter 6, the next is that we can't earn eternal life. This is part of, part of the people's reaction and rejection of Jesus is that he's teaching them that, that they can't earn eternal life, that you and I can't earn eternal life based off of our works. That's offensive. We struggle with grace, don't we? Grace is a free gift of God, and we are so conditioned by our culture and also just the state of the world that you get what you deserve, and that if somebody gives you something, you pay them back. I've got a friend who every time we invite him and his family over for dinner, he's just like, can I bring something? Can I bring something? And and we're always like, no. Sometimes it depends on life and chaos. Sometimes we're like, yes, you can bring everything. But, but when, like, when we say no, he's just, he does not want to accept the free gift. So much so that like, we've got a whole dinner made with everything provided and he'll show up with like a bag of chips that don't even go with it. And it's like, because it's hard and, and, and we're like that, aren't we? We're conditioned to think that, well, we are conditioned, right? Maybe you earned allowance as a child. You earned grades based off of the effort that you put in. That report card, it's a report, how you worked. You earn that A or that D in my case. We work, right? You go to work, you get a paycheck. You do good, you get affirmation from your spouse, from your friends, from your roommates. You clean the dishes, they pat you on the back. You don't, you get the cold shoulder. We're conditioned. This is how life works. And Jesus is here saying salvation is something entirely different. Eternal life isn't something that you can earn. I'm going to kind of re-engineer this. And and for the next couple points, we're going to start at the end and kind of work our way back through some of what Jesus has said. So look at verse 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Part of what the crowd is wrestling with, both the crowd and the disciples, is this reality that they can't add anything to their salvation. That's part of what the church continually and perpetually wrestles with. Is it really just by grace, a free gift of God? Am I really saved by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Or, or, Or do I need to participate with that? Like, do I need to read my Bible a little bit more? Do I need to repent a little more often? Do I need to sing a little more? Do I need to give a little more money? Do I need to, I need to clean my life up. I need to be a more moral person. I'm so unfaithful. 
Surely I've got to put more effort in. I've got to put more work in so that God is pleased with me. And then as God is pleased with me, he will pat me on the back. He will decide that I've crossed the line over unfaithfulness to faithfulness and now I'm saved. And that's not at all the gospel. Ben mentioned that there's bad news in the world, right? And then it's even manipulated. There is. There's bad news in religion, The bad news is do more, do more, do more, get more, get more, get more. Jesus comes to give us good news that in spite of our failures, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our best efforts and accomplishments, we are saved by the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The flesh is of no help at all. That's what Jesus says, verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. So if you're a very disciplined person, praise God for that. Hopefully as you discipline, you're experiencing more joy and peace and grace from God. Your discipline doesn't save you. You're the person who's like, we need more spiritual disciplines, more spiritual disciplines, more spiritual disciplines. Yes, in response to who God is and in response to this new life that he's given you, your spiritual disciplines though don't earn you eternal life. It's so easy to start thinking that we've got to do more, we've got to do more, we've got to do more, we've got to conquer our flesh. We've got to get our flesh to submit. And here Jesus clearly says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Our fleshly efforts to better ourselves through humanitarian efforts, through religious do-gooding, through moral living, they don't do a thing for gaining us or guaranteeing us or keeping eternal life for us. It's the Spirit. Look back at verses 27 through 29. And Jesus begins this teaching on being the bread of life. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Again, I said this last week, but that doesn't mean that you should quit your job and just trust that God's going to give you free food all the time. Some of you, he may call to do that. Most of us, we go to work for a paycheck. We use that paycheck to buy our bread. He's using this earthly reality to point us to a spiritual truth. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There's more than the here and now. It says, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do? And there it is. Our religiously trained minds. What must I do? What must I do? What must I do? God, tell me what to do. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Really, Jesus, it's, it's, it's all about you? This is offensive to people who want to earn something and who think that they deserve something, whether that be good or bad. Some of us, we, we want bad, we want to be punished for our bad actions. And God's grace is offensive. It's scandalous. He's like, I have paid the penalty for your sin. I have given you new life. And he'll discipline us to grow us up. But some of us are like, we just, there's people who punish themselves, right? We live with shame and guilt. 
And Jesus' response is to offer us grace and new life and eternal life through the Spirit, not the flesh. We can't earn eternal life. He says the only thing that we can do to do the work of God is to believe or to have trust in Jesus, to have faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus does, not who we are and what we do or who we aren't and what we don't do. This is good news, church family. Trust isn't something that we do, it's something that we have. When Jesus says in verse 30, 29, this is the work of God that you believe, that word pistis, in Greek it's pistis, it's trust, it's faith. Trust isn't something you do as much as it is something that you have. And it's based on another person, right? A trustworthy person or thing or object. Now, trust grows as we act, right? Trust grows as we act. But trust doesn't start with action. It starts with, you step out because you're like, I have a little glimmer of trust. Think about the trust fall, right? It's such a cheesy thing that I hate to even go here. But like, you know the trust fall when people stand here with their arms out and you're blindfolded and you're standing up high and, and you would not go if you didn't have at least a sliver of trust that those people were going to catch you. And then they catch you and trust is built. They let you go and trust is broken. And so trust When Jesus in verse 29 says, the work of God is that you trust in him whom he has sent, that you trust in Jesus, that's where salvation comes from. This little sliver of trust mixed in with tons of doubt that hopefully over time, as you continue to trust God day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year and trial after trial and struggle after struggle, this trust grows. It deepens because God proves to be faithful, to be trustworthy. But you're not saved by your actions. You're saved by your trust in his character and trustworthiness. And then you act out of that trust. And over time, your trust is strengthened and it grows. The third offensive thing that Jesus says that they're wrestling with, this hard saying that it's hard to listen to, it's that we don't choose Jesus. We don't choose Jesus. Now, there's a huge tension here. There's some pretty big theological, these next two points, and in this passage, there's some, there's some theological nuance that people divide over and fight over, and it's just, I, I honestly, I hate it. And so I want to look at what's in the text here and try to understand what Jesus is saying, but without trying to fall into like these theological camps where we fight against predestination and free will or election or, or God's choosing versus our choosing. So I want to go into this, look at what Jesus is saying and try to make sense of it as best we can, knowing that there's different people who interpret these things differently and there's a tension, a mystery here, which must be held together. But what Jesus seems to be teaching in this text is that we don't choose him. He chooses us. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. I'll, I'll come back to that statement. Just look at verse 70 now for what it is. Did I not choose you, the twelve? It's possible that, that Jesus is using this choosing, this selective, this election idea for just the 12 disciples, apostles. It's, it's possible. 
But let's keep going. There seems to be some more elements here of, of God doing the work of drawing people to himself. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That word granted, it, it could be translated gifted. No one comes to Jesus. Jesus seems to be teaching that nobody comes to saving faith in God and, and, and places their trust in Jesus unless that is gifted to him by God the Father. Unless it's granted to him by God the Father. Seems like he's the one doing the drawing and the, the choosing and the, the welcoming and the electing. Again, <laughs> let's just keep going. Verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, there it is again. Jesus is saying, No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. It's as if God the Father is wooing people in with his love and his grace. Theologically, people may refer to this as, um, I wrote it down so I don't forget it. Where did it go? Irresistible grace which some of you, those of you who have been around theology, you're like, like oh, that's a point of tulip. Tulip is like a theological system used by Calvinists, and I'm just not a big fan of theological systems that put things into acronyms. It's, too, it, it's just, you have to narrow Scripture down and the mystery of Scripture down too much to get it in there. So please just, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of tulip. There seems to be something happening in this passage, though, where there's some kind of wooing, some kind of drawing, some kind of irresistible grace of God. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So those of us who walk with Jesus and continue to walk with Jesus, there's some type of wooing dynamic, some type of, some type of drawing us in, calling us closer that God does, that keeps us. Those who abandon Jesus, as we saw here in this text, right? Verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So that's the tension in this text. Huge crowd. Out of that crowd, some people remained with Jesus and kept walking with him. Others deconstructed. They, they walked away. Because there's some hard sayings, some hard teachings that Jesus is giving them. And, and, and it's separating people. Part of that hard teaching is, is that we don't choose Jesus. What does that mean? What I don't know. But it seems like Jesus himself is saying in his own words, verse 44, that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him in. Verse 65, I told you that no one comes to me unless it is granted or gifted to them by the Father to come in. Now, I think verse 67 is important to keep in mind. So verse 66, we see that, that many of his disciples, and, and I think it's interesting that John uses the word disciples here. You know, because some people are like, well, there's just the crowd and they only want the flashy things. And then there's the disciples, the 12. And yes, it does whittle down to the 12. But notice that even in this interaction, the, this crowd, they're referred to as disciples. What is a disciple? It's somebody who follows Jesus. It's an apprentice of Jesus. And they had literally been following Jesus from town to town. You know people like this. Maybe you are this person. You're like, yeah, I keep coming to church, but I don't like it. I don't believe it. Ah, you're wrestling with Jesus. That's okay. You're welcome to wrestle, to question, to doubt. 
Even Peter, with his, with his amazing statement, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What does he do later on? He denies Jesus. And so wherever you are on your journey, you're welcome. Keep wrestling, keep doubting, keep questioning, keep walking with other people who are wanting to walk with Jesus. And I think 67 is really important. Again, so 66 tells us that many people turned and no longer walked with him. And then Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So there's this tension here between God wooing, God drawing, God choosing his disciples, and then Jesus giving them the opportunity to leave, right? Do you want to go away as well? So while God woos us in, he doesn't force us to stay. We can choose to walk away or to reject Jesus, or to deconstruct our faith, or to be a devil, like it says about Judas in verse 70. Judas was chosen, Judas was elected, Judas was drawn into the 12, he's considered one of the 12, and then it says in verse 70, did I not choose you 12, and yet one of you is a devil? I don't know how that works. Do you? Like, God, what? These are hard sayings. And I love that Jesus just gives them this option. Like, do you want to go away as well? And I think that's always an option for us. Like, you're not stuck. But to those who keep walking with Jesus, there's this, there's this component that he keeps drawing them back and drawing them back and drawing them back. And that's not without doubt, pain, suffering, questions. But there's this tension that has to be lived with here. And then the, the fourth hard saying that I think they're wrestling with, who can listen to this? It's this other teaching that people fight about and divide over. It's that we can't lose Jesus. Or better stated, maybe Jesus won't lose you. Some people would refer to this as perseverance of the saints. Again, that's the P in tulip. I'm sorry. I don't like tulip, but I, I think this is a good point. That real, genuine disciples or apprentices of Jesus continue to walk with him. And we, we can't lose Jesus. Or like I said, maybe it's better stated, he won't lose us. Look at verse 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. See, even, he's talking about people here. All that the Father gives me, there's, there's something about God giving people to Jesus. All that the Father gives me and will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's an amazing promise. You can wrestle with the mystery of some of these theological doctrines, but grab onto the promise. Question, wrestle, argue, have debates about theology, but then hear this promise that Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will not lose you. I was talking with a friend about this this week, and he's like, I get the picture of like, I'm just running away from Jesus, right? Like a little kid running away from their parent, and I'm just panting, I'm out of breath, I stop, and I look, and Jesus is just like, that's all he got. <laughs> He's not out of breath at all. He's just chasing. As we wander, as we run, as we doubt, as we dabble in darkness, if we are his, 
says, he will never lose us. Your own flesh, remember, the flesh is of no value at all for salvation. Your own, your own flesh can't push Jesus away if you are his. He says, I will never cast them out. Pick it up in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Brother, sister in Jesus, if you are in Jesus, hear that promise and cling to it. How does that work? I don't know. Take it out of your theological systems and textbooks and, and arguments and just cling to Jesus' words. I will never lose you. I will never cast you out. You are mine. I'm chasing you. I'm fighting for you. As the Old Testament passage says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Try as we might to kick and scream. If we are in his grasp, he will not let us go. Again, this could be referred to as perseverance of the saints. But I also want to add in like the power and the promise of God to keep us. One of the things I don't like about that tulip acronym and the P, perseverance of the saints, even though I think genuine disciples persevere, the focus is on us, perseverance of the saints. What, what happens when I'm not persevering? What happens when I'm weak? What happens when I'm doubting? What happens when I... I think the focus here is actually on Jesus, the one who has the power to keep us and one, the one who made the promise to keep us. It doesn't have to do with us. It's his work. Now, the tension that we just need to engage here for a minute as we close down this morning is this reality that, that there are those who keep walking with Jesus and those who don't. Those who keep walking with Jesus and those who don't. Verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus gives them some more hard saying, some more hard teaching. Verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this, this, this reality is tender for us. Some of you have kids, grandkids who have walked away. Some of you have parents who have walked away. Some of you have friends who have walked away. Some of you have spouses who have walked away. And I want you to hear there's always a chance that they walk back. That, that God's wooing, drawing, holding, that that may play out in their life. But, but what's the difference between those who keep walking with Jesus and those who don't? We don't really know. There's a mystery here. But those who don't keep walking with Jesus, they, they have hard hearts that reject him. You know, they, they deconstruct. And there, there's a level of good deconstruction. But there's a type of deconstruction where they use their experience, their religion, their religious baggage, their politics, their preferences, their worldview to deconstruct Jesus' word. So those who walk away from Jesus, typically what happens is they use the things of earth, the things of the world, the broken things, to deconstruct Jesus. Rather than pressing on when things get tough, when teachings are tough, and when, when circumstances are tough, they give up and they walk away. They trust themselves, or they trust other people or ideologies, which will eventually let them down. If you're curious about this, 
Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives a parable of four soils. It's a really helpful parable to keep in mind when you're wrestling with your own salvation, other people's salvation, the journey of following Jesus, why some walk away, why others don't. Matthew chapter 13 would be a good thing to go and read later on. Those who don't keep walking with Jesus, there's a hardness of heart. Those who keep walking with Jesus, their, their hearts are softened, softened by trust. Rather than using the world and their experiences to deconstruct the word of Jesus, they use the word of Jesus to deconstruct the world and their experiences. So there's awful religious institutions and harm and abuse. And those who are going to keep walking with Jesus, they're going to use Jesus' word as the filter for how they see religious experiences and abuse and trauma. They're going to deconstruct their experience based off of who Jesus is rather than deconstruct, deconstruct Jesus based off of their experience. That, that's part of the difference here. Those who keep walking with Jesus, they, they are able to exclaim like Peter, where, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Doesn't mean they understand everything. Doesn't mean that they know everything. Doesn't mean that they, that they agree with everything. It's just at the end of the day, like we sang this morning, there's a dependency. I depend on you. I depend on you. I don't know where else to go. They believe in Jesus and abide with him, as Jesus will go on to tell us later in John. John chapter 8, verse 31, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, my followers, my apprentices. John chapter 15 is all about abiding, remaining, being with Jesus. And so what's the difference between those who have hearts that are hardened and those who have hearts that are softened? We don't really know. It's the wooing, the drawing, the choosing of God. It's the keeping of God. It's, it, it's, it's our responsiveness to God. I, there's a mystery there, a profound mystery that we can't quite understand. And so I want to remind you to wrestle with those mysteries, but cling to the promise. There's a helpful saying an old Puritan saying, it says, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. We don't understand. The same sun that melts the ice, praise the Lord, our ice is finally melting. That same sun hardens the clay. Jesus, the Son of God, for some, he softens the heart. He melts the hardness of our heart. He removes the scale from our eyes. For others, his same message hardens their heart and puts scales on their eyes. We don't know. If the message of Jesus is softening your heart and removing scales from your eyes, praise God for that. And then ask that it would do the same for others that you know. We don't know how this happens, why this happens. It's a mystery for us to wrestle with, but there's promises here for us to embrace. Here's what I can tell you as we close it this morning, that disciples of Jesus are simply willing to believe Jesus, trust in him, have faith, even, even a little sliver. That's where it begins. And it grows over time, day in and day out, as you continue walking with Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are willing to take Jesus at his word and, and keep walking with him. They're willing to throw up their hands and exclaim like Peter, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So I want to invite you to come this morning and partake of the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Remember, this whole teaching is coming out of Jesus saying 
that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will receive eternal life. And, and he wasn't speaking specifically about communion, but communion is a beautiful picture of us taking the life-giving transformation of Jesus into our bodies and allowing him to produce and work out salvation and new life. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Jesus, there are certainly hard sayings in this book that are hard to understand and also hard to accept. And Lord, you said that our flesh is of no help at all, but only the Spirit. So Lord, I pray that we would surrender our religious efforts, that we would surrender our intellect, that we would surrender our desire to control outcomes and processes, and that we would come to the table this morning as needy people feasting upon the bread of life and drinking the cup of salvation. May you empower us through your spirit to keep walking with you and to respond as Peter did. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Have your way in us, Lord Jesus. Amen.